So take God's holy word this morning. We're continuing in our book of Acts, our study of Acts. We're in chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible or didn't bring a Bible, most of the scripture passages will be up on the screen uh, for you. And today we're talking about coping with criticism, coping with criticism. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing this old adage at least once, twice, three times a week. Um, my parents often said, you know, before, before you criticize somebody, walk a mile around in their shoes. Have, did you hear that? Maybe you applied that to your own life, and uh, I think definitely you should, uh, before you criticize somebody, uh, you should walk a mile in their shoes. Then when you do criticize them, you'll be a mile away and you'll have their shoes. So... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we're not talking about just any criticism, about coping with just anything. We're not talking about so much, you know, people uh, saying, oh, you don't look very nice today, or, you know, just stuff, nasty stuff like that. I'm not talking about that. We're talking specifically about criticism that comes through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and taking a stand for Him. Um, now, I wonder if, in fact, we are enduring criticism for the Lord, for Christ. And if you're not, don't pat yourself on the back just yet. <laughs> for the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.12, 3, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's just going to happen. If you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you cannot live godly in this kind of world and ours and in the environment that we have without being criticized for your faith. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice. Because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, it, it must be false. It must be a false testimony about you. It must be wrong criticism about you when you're standing before the Lord for it to be for His sake. It's that kind of criticism we're talking about. Some of us get criticized for things that we really deserve to be criticized for. But if you are criticized for standing for the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are persecuted, praise God. That's exactly the way the Bible says it ought to be. Great is your reward in heaven, Jesus said. Now, sometimes, sometimes what we get is not persecution. It's punishment. Now, you know the difference between punishment and persecution. So persecution comes when bad folks persecute us for doing good. That's persecution. Punishment comes when good folks punish us for being bad. There is a difference. And this morning we're going to focus on those who suffer for righteousness sake. Those who because of their stand for the Lord Jesus Christ are oftentimes misunderstood, maligned, persecuted, uh, maybe even physically attacked. 
Jesus said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And now the Apostle Paul knew what it was to be criticized. As a matter of fact, the scripture uh, that we're about to read has the Apostle standing before the high court. Now we're not going to go back and study any of it, but what we looked at last week was how Paul tried to make it into the temple uh, somewhat disguised, but they found him out. He wasn't doing anything wrong, but they accused him of all matters of evil. They said, you, you brought Gentiles into this holy place. No, he didn't. So people were just full of hot air, but all it takes is one to start mob mentality, and they were really attacking uh, Paul. In fact, the Roman guard had to save his life and put him behind bars for a while just to keep the crowd from getting to them. So today, uh, our scripture has Paul now coming before uh, the Sanhedrin, as we're about uh, to see. He's standing before the high court to kind of give an account of himself. Now, the high court is the Sanhedrin. Uh, these were not just a normal group of people. They were extremely powerful. And this was the same group that had caused Jesus to be crucified. It was the same group that caused Stephen to be stoned. And I want to remind you of something else. Paul used to be a member of this group. Paul was, was one of the few people who was a member of the San, Sanhedrin, and now he is no longer a member of the Sanhedrin. They look upon him as a traitor, as a turncoat, if you will. And now he's standing before this council. Let's look at verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. So that is, he's looking them straight into the eye. He's not ashamed. He's not like, you know, got his tail tucked between his legs and, and bowed before them and begging for mercy. He comes straight at them face to face with the truth. Look at verses 2 through 5 now in chapter 23. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I love that. I, sometimes I just park it right here just to see Paul get back at other people. But he, he was so right. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, you are ordering me to be attacked. Evidently, Paul didn't know who this man was that was speaking. And that doesn't say a lot for him. Usually the high priest looks a little different, a little bit more special, kind of stands out in the crowd, but no, not today. But he was talking to the high priest. He, the guy certainly wasn't acting like the high priest. The apostle Paul was criticized. He was persecuted. He was physically abused for his stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he faces this criticism triumphantly. Now you're going to be criticized and you're going to be persecuted if you live a godly life, if you live for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to show you how to cope with criticism and have peace in persecution. You're going to be able to do it exactly the same way that Paul did. And I want to mention a couple of things that really pour out of our passage today that really show us how Paul handled his life 
and the persecution and the criticism that came to him. Number one, he had a righteous life. He had a righteous life. Paul, in verse 1, speaks about his conscience. And he says, in verse 1, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. Now, the Apostle Paul lived a righteous life. That righteous life, initially, it, it comes from Jesus. When we are saved, when we give our hearts and lives to Christ, Christ comes and makes us righteous. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. That's called self-righteousness. And people can pick that out pretty quick in our lives, can't they? We are righteous only because the Lord Jesus has accounted to us righteous righteousness. But that righteous life also comes out of a good conscience. Comes out of a good conscience. Now, what is conscience? Conscience is, is, is that inner voice, that judge that God has put within us that either accuses us or excuses us for our actions. Now, conscience, listen, conscience can't make you good and your conscience can't make you bad. It's just that alarm that goes off when you are bad or it's the peace that affirms you when you do what is right. Now, we hear people say, let conscience be your guide. Well, sometimes you can let conscience be your guide, but not all the time. You can only let conscience be your guide to the degree that God guides your conscience. You see, the Bible mentions all kinds of conscience. Paul says here, I have a good one. I have a good conscience. Well, how do you have a good conscience? Paul says later on in the next chapter, chapter 24, verse 16, I always strive to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, what is a good conscience? A good conscience is a conscience that is free of offense toward God and free of offense toward men. Now listen, friend, if you don't have that kind of conscience, you'll never be able to stand criticism and never be able to endure persecution. A conscience free of offense toward God, towards your fellow men. Let me ask you a question. Is there in your heart right now any unconfessed sin? If so, I hope for me and you that we don't have a good conscience. Hopefully, our conscience is not letting us get away with that sin but that the Lord is allowing our conscience to speak a mighty message to us that we need to confess our sins. Because our sins are a holy offense to God. They're, they're, they're a travesty to the Lord. Our sins, unconfessed sin in your heart, piled up, creates a terrible conscience. And you know what I'm talking about. We've all been there. Maybe we're there right now. Let me ask you another question. Is there any problem between you and another brother or sister in Christ that you have not made right? I'm not talking about what they've done to you. I'm talking about what you are responsible for, what you have done to them. 
Have you offended someone? Is there anyone that can point a finger of accusation rightfully back at you and say something about you that either you have not endeavored to make right or that you've just not confessed or you've not repented of? If so, you don't have a good conscience. I don't have a good conscience. It's a clear conscience. It's a, it's a good conscience that enables you when people criticize you or persecute you, you can look at them and say, criticize all you want, but I'm, my conscience is clear. I, I know there's nothing between me and my God. I know there's nothing between me and my, my brother. I, I say just fire away. It's okay. That's the way Paul lived his life. You see, when Paul said, I'm standing here with a good conscience, and, and that gives you a tremendous liberty. It gives you a tremendous freedom. You don't have to worry about somebody saying, hey, what about this, and, and what about that in your life? Look at this up on the screen. This is true. We can't be sinless. But folks, listen, we ought to be blameless. We can't be sinless, but we ought to be blameless. <laughs> what that means is we, when we do sin, we confess it to the Lord, we forsake it, we make it right, we make amends. Matthew 5, verses 23 and following, so if Jesus says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar first. Go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Because that's what's important to the Lord. Not that you're giving. He says you can come do this later. But if there's a fence out there, if you have something against a brother or a sister or they have something against you, go clear it up. Go clear it up as best as you can. And that's just basic Christianity. When you, and when you have that, it's amazing how you can stand criticism. You see, if your conscience bothers you, then criticism will bother you. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and, and they both sinned, their conscience was wounded and they hid from God. God came walking into the midst of them in the garden and cried out, Adam, where are you? And Adam and Eve were hiding in the bushes, trying to hide from God. And Adam said, I'm hiding. I'm hiding. Why? Because his conscience condemned him. Do you know why some folks like to come, don't like to come to a worship service? Do you know why many people don't like to hear a message about Jesus? Do you know why, why some people just refuse to hear the Bible preached, their consciences bother them. Their conscience bothers them and they run from God exactly as Adam and Eve ran from God there in the Garden of Eden. You get your conscience bothering you, you feel condemned every time the preacher preaches. You feel like he's talking right to you. You'll say, why did he get so personal? <laughs> it's simply that conscience is bothering us. But you get right with God. You get right with God and you will enjoy coming to that worship service. You will enjoy when the pastor opens up the word of God and begins to preach truth. 
Now, you have to have a good conscience. There's all kinds of conscience. Let me show, what, show you what the Bible says about different kinds of conscience. Number one, you can have a defiled conscience. You can have a defiled conscience. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. Now, that's the reason that you can't let conscience always be your guide because your conscience is kind of like a thermostat, a thermostat. It can be set to operate at any level. Someone said, well, my conscience doesn't bother me. Well, that doesn't mean what you're doing is right. It may mean that you've lowered, so lowered your standards of living that it, your life just allows you to get away with all matters of evil. There's a defiled conscience. Let God set the thermostat, if you will, in your life. And not only can you have a defiled conscience, but listen, you can have a seared conscience. You can have a seared conscience. The Bible speaks in 1 Timothy chapter 4, having their conscience seared. And it's like you're, you're branding cattle, branding a domestic animal like that. And it always burns when that hot iron is put to their, to their outer lane, the, the flesh and the, and the fur and the hair and so forth. It, it might burn for a while, but you can go back to that seared portion, stick a pin in it, they won't feel it. Because all of the nerve endings for the pain ha have been seared, they've been burned out. Now, you can do the same with your conscience. You can sow sin against your conscience that your conscience gets burned out and doesn't operate as it should. The Native Americans used to say that conscience is like an arrowhead within every man's chest. When you do bad, the arrowhead revolves around and the sharp corners are painful and they hurt. But the Native Americans said, he said, if you do bad long enough, the sharp corners will wear off and you don't feel it anymore. Or you may have, a, I suppose this is the worst kind of conscience, an evil conscience, an evil conscience. Hebrews chapter 10 speaks of an evil conscience. Do you know what an evil conscience is? An evil conscience is literally a conscience that literally approves of evil, approves of evil, not just once in a while dabbles with it and then feels terrible. They at least might go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, but some people are so warped and so twisted that they actually call good bad and bad good. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. People can get so warped, so distorted, that they don't know the difference between right and wrong. They actually think wrong is right and right is wrong. We see a lot of that today. That is an evil conscience. But I want to tell you something, folks. You may have a defiled conscience. You might have a seared conscience. You may even have an evil conscience. Conscience. And if you have any of those, you will not be able 
to cope with criticism or persecution. Not in the Bible way. But the apostle said, that day, I stand here with a good conscience. And when you have that, you know that your life is void of of any offense between you and God. Any offense between your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You can cope with criticism and even have a peace in that persecution or even joy in that persecution. So number one, if you would learn how to cope with criticism, if you would learn how to stand in these days of persecution or persecution that is coming, you must have a righteous life. And that's what Paul was standing on. And just one other thing, number two, the second thing that enabled Paul to stand as he did that day was a resurrected Lord. It was a resurrected Lord. Look at verse 6. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And I love that part too because it's like throwing a stick of dynamite between these Pharisees and Sadducees. This is what they argued about all day long. And Paul, Paul knew something then. He, he knew that it really wasn't himself. And, and Jesus even told him before, hey, they're coming after you, but it's really me. So Paul knew, hey, you're not so upset with me. It was the Lord. So he said, I know why I'm here. I'm suffering this criticism. I'm enduring this persecution because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. I have been preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, folks, let me tell you something about the resurrection of Jesus. It is, first, a disturbing truth. It's a disturbing truth. It's a truth that disturbs, and if if, if that is true, and it is, they're about the resurrection, that a man walked out of his grave, rose from the dead, you've got to deal with that. You've got to deal with that. I mean, if that's true, that Jesus literally came out of the grave, if it's true, and it is, then that is a disturbing truth. I mean, you just can't be neutral about something like that. And I have to agree with the person that said, hey, if Jesus Christ is still in that grave, nothing really matters. But if Jesus Christ came out of that grave, Nothing else matters. That's a disturbing truth. You can't just say, well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. makes no difference to me. I mean, every person is going to have to face the fact of the resurrection. Either it is true or it is not true. It's a disturbing fact. It's a disturbing truth. Not only is it a disturbing truth, but secondly, it is a divisive truth. It is a divisive truth. It's a truth that not only disturbs, but boy, it divides. Let's read verses 7 through 8. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was was divided. And here's why. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither are there angels, nor any kind of spirit. I mean, I don't think those guys believed in anything. 
But the Pharisees affirmed them all. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, you, you got a classic confrontation here. You have the Sadducees who didn't believe in demons or angels or spirits. They certainly didn't believe in a resurrection. They just believe when you die, that's all there is. And then you have the Pharisees who believed in demons and the angels and resurrection. So what you have here are the fundamentalists and the liberals. And in this case, neither one of them knew Jesus. The only thing that brought them together was the Stop Paul campaign. You've seen those signs, you know, we, uh, not political signs like advertising certain people, but whenever we, we want to uh, rise up and, and work hard against, you know, a movement like, you know, Stop the Quarry or whatever, I think that was in, real popular in Basking Ridge a long time ago. You'll see those signs out there. I mean, every one of them, they were handing out signs. You're talking about strange bedfellows. And, and, and these were strange bedfellows, but they got together to stop Paul. So I can imagine they just had those stop Paul signs everywhere around. But they came together for no other reason and purpose but because of Paul. And so Paul just kind of threw a bombshell in their lap. He said, I'm here because of the hope of the resurrection. And Paul, Paul was not trying to start trouble. He was stating the truth. Well, he may have been trying to start a little trouble. Now, at that moment, there arose a great division. Because there were some who did, not, who did believe in the resurrection, some who did, didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They said, yeah, our bodies are resurrected, but we don't believe that Jesus is who he says he was. And others who just didn't believe in the resurrection at all. And this whole idea caused them division. And when you preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ, really preach it. It's a disturbing truth. It's a truth that divides. There was dissension in the room. And two things that oppose each other, both can't be right. The ecumenists of today believe that we ought to just homogenize all the world's religions and everything will be all right. They say, hey, that's the only way we're really going to have peace. Everybody just compromises a little bit about their faith, just compromise a little bit more, kind of come to some agreement, and then we can have peace. But you know what Jesus said about that. Matthew chapter 10, he said, Don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I didn't come to just blend everything together. I came to separate right from wrong, light from dark, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, truth from error. Hey, folks, listen, either he came up out of that grave, the Lord Jesus Christ, or he didn't. So which side are you on? You can't just ball it all, kind of group it all together, ball it up and just say, hey, does it really make any difference? Let's just put our arms around everybody and say, hey, you're okay and, and I'm okay and we all kind of believe the same thing. No, no, no. When you take a stand for truth, you're going to have a head-on collision with error. Someone is going to oppose you, and that's why you get criticism. Now, wait a minute. The resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, it's both disturbing 
and, and it can be divisive. But I want you to know, third, it is a truth that delivers. It is a truth that delivers. It delivered the Apostle Paul. You see, he said, I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul knew the same thing that was causing him persecution was also the same thing that was giving him peace. Paul said, you, you know, you, you can do what you want. As a matter of fact, there were some people who, who had, you'll, you'll see later on down in, in chapter, uh, this chapter and on in chapter 24, there were people who made a vow. I mean, when you take a vow, you had to keep it. They made a vow not to sleep, eat, or drink until Paul was dead. And there's a very interesting uh, story that plays out about them trying to kill Paul. He said, hey, go ahead. Go ahead, try and kill me. You can kill me. That's okay. There's hope in the resurrection. You see, when a person gets persecuted, when a person gets criticized, if he can see through to that empty grave, the one where the Lord Jesus Christ was in it, but now no longer, if you can see through the criticism and, and that persecution, to the empty grave of Christ, that Christ has conquered the grave, and that helps him to stand. That'll help that woman to stand faced with blistering persecution and criticism. Now, if you don't have that kind of hope, listen, you're going to cave. It's a truth that delivers. You are not truly ready to live until you're ready to die. When a man is no longer afraid to die, strangely, for the first time in his life, he is ready to live. And here the Apostle Paul says, hey, I got all you folks coming against me, all this noise, all these threats. But the only thing I can say right now is I've got the resurrected Lord in my corner. For the hope of the resurrection of the dead I stand before you. Do you have that assurance, my friends? Paul had a righteous life. He had a resurrected Lord. And because of this, they were coming at him, but they didn't move him. He stood and he looked at him right in the face. He had something that enabled him to stand against all comers, to have this peace and joy in the midst, in the face of persecution. Paul Enjoyed a righteous life. He enjoyed the resurrected Lord. And I want you to look at verse 11. It's about the last verse. Verse 11, chapter 23 of Acts. The following night. Oh, this is beautiful. The Lord stood by him. I don't know whether he personally came, whether it was a vision or a dream or what. But he came and stood by him and he said, Have courage. Have courage. For as you have testified about me, in Jerusalem. So it is necessary for you to testify about me in Rome. You know what the Lord did to his man who was being persecuted, being falsely criticized, being unlawfully condemned. He just comes along. He doesn't take him out of it. But he puts his arm around him. He says, all right, Paul. 
It's all right. You took a stand for me. I am going to take a stand for you. That's our Lord Jesus, my friends. I want to know if you know him. I want to know that, that if you were to leave here today and die tomorrow, that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you would be in heaven forever with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Father God, we just implore you right now. Speak to our hearts. May your Holy Spirit convict us, Father, of our conscience. If we have any unconfessed sin, if we have any offense against our brothers in Christ, help us to clear that up today. Father, I pray for each and every person here. And I don't know the spiritual condition of all the people in this room. Maybe they've come because today is, was a wonderful event that they didn't want to miss. But, but they're not saved. They haven't yet submitted themselves to Christ. They haven't yet heard the knocking on the door of their heart. Maybe they've heard it, but they've ignored it. And today, and today, Father, they're hearing it loud and clear, and they want to have a righteous life. And so I invite them to pray with me, Lord Jesus, I hear you knocking on the door of my heart, and I open up the door, and I invite you in to come and be with me, to come be the Lord of my life, to forgive me of my sins, to save me from my sins, and to give me eternal life. And I believe, Father, that you will do exactly that. Because the Bible says that if we just call upon the name of the Lord, we'll be saved. That if we'll believe in our heart that Jesus Christ was crucified and that he was raised from the dead, we can be saved. It's just that simple. It doesn't require years of church membership or hours and hours of Bible study, Father, we can be saved right now. So I encourage that person to pray a prayer just like that. For the rest of us here, Lord, who do know you, maybe our consciences are a little bit defiled right now. Maybe the sins have stacked up and we've not prayed to receive forgiveness in a long, long time. So, Father, we can do that. We can take care of business right now. As we come to our invitation, Lord, we can come before you and confess those sins and ask for forgiveness. Oh, what a load off of our spirit that is. Father, speak to our hearts right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.